All right. Uh, well, I'll be continuing with church history. Uh, so for a while, we've been looking at the Eastern Church, the Byzantine Empire, uh, sort of that part of history. We're in the early Middle Ages, um, early, so 700 to 1,000 more or less, that time period. Um, now we're going to shift our focus probably for a while to the Western Church, maybe longer than a while. I don't know if we'll talk about the East again much, but it's time to go West. Uh, so during the early part of the Middle Ages, uh, the Western Church and the remnants of the Roman Empire uh, did kind of a lot of waxing and waning. We saw that with some of their interactions with the East. Uh, they'd get overrun by barbarians, and then the Eastern Church would go rescue them, meaning take over them instead. And, and then a different, stronger person would come up, and they'd get some more independence. So it was a lot of back and forth in the early Middle Ages. Um, but eventually, the, the West is going to get stronger again. Um, we did see, and I think I talked about it really quick, they had um, Charlemagne the Great um, and the Holy Roman Empire that rose up. Um, that was a period of strength for the Western Empire uh, and the church associated with him. They called it the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but even that sort of fractured for a while as well. Um, so as we get into the, the 800s and the 900s now, we're going to see the Western church start to gain a lot of influence throughout Western and Northern Europe, uh, largely through the efforts of its missionaries. Um, during this time, there was a great plague upon Western Europe. Uh, it's not the one you're thinking of. It's not the Black Plague. It's the Vikings. The Vikings started to really raid and pillage and plunder um, they were also called the Norsemen, the Northern Men. Um, they were pagans uh, who came out of the Scandinavian countries. So Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland. Um, they, they raided along the coasts and up and down the riverways. Um, I think they tended to avoid fortified cities, but there really weren't that many of those yet uh, in the early medieval period. Um, and they had no respect for... Christianity for the church you know within within Europe there had been this kind of, you know a church is a sacred place you know somebody could seek sanctuary in a church Vikings didn't care about that they plundered churches they killed monks they raped nuns they dishonored the church you might say um, but as they conquered many of them began to settle down in the regions that they had conquered uh, and form new little nation states uh, so one particular case of this occurred in England. Uh, Vikings from Denmark had conquered kind of northern and northeastern England uh, and then settled in that area. And from those settlements <laughs> continued to fight and push towards the south. Um, they didn't encounter much in the way of good resistance as they pushed south until they got to the kingdom of Wessex, um, which was currently ruled by the Christian king Alfred the Great. Uh, interestingly enough, the only English king to have the title of the Great. So, Alfred won a decisive and crushing victory over these uh, Danish Vikings in AD 878. Uh, as a result of that victory, they signed a peace treaty um, because they were established in the Northeast. It wasn't like they got kicked off England. They were still going to be there, but no more war. So he figured we better make peace with them, and it would be great if they didn't persecute us or fight us as we try to trade with them and things now. So as part of his peace treaty, he required that the Danish king, uh, King Guthrum, 
along with all of his royal court, should be baptized into the Christian faith. Uh, missionary efforts through war conquest. Whether it was true repentance or not, I don't know, but they were baptized and they officially converted to Christianity. Um, and it was this common faith that proved to be the catalyst that would eventually unite these two people groups uh, many years later uh, under the rule of Alfred's great-grandson, uh, King Athelstan. He was the first to really unite all of England. Um, and it was because they shared this common Christian faith now with the Danes who had settled in the northern region. Uh, we see a similar story around this time period happened in France as well. The invading Norsemen, uh, they were called Normans by the French. So if you think of France and you hear of the region of Normandy, that was where the Viking Norsemen um, settled. They conquered and, and stayed. Um, same thing happened. They lost a major war. They signed a treaty. Uh, this was in AD 911. Uh, that also required that they embrace the Christian faith, uh, which they did. Uh, and interestingly enough, in, in later years, Norman knights, particularly knights out of this French region of Normandy that were a Viking background, would prove to be some of the most devout Christian warriors of the Crusades. Vikings liked to fight. They were big guys, and they proved to be good Crusader knights uh, when the time came. Not that that's a good thing, but it was... Just a fact. Uh, so not only did these conversions, if you want to call them conversions, um, stop the plague of Viking conquest, but they also opened the doors uh, for sort of a reverse conquest, they opened the doors for missionaries to then go into the Scandinavian countries. Uh, eventually, all of them embraced Christianity as their natural religion, converting from their paganism. Um, in AD 972, King Harold Bluetooth of Denmark was baptized. Excuse me? Uh, he had a lot of Bluetooth devices. Bluetooth devices. Yes. He was the forerunner. He was the forerunner. Very ahead of his time. Yes. Um, he probably had a dead tooth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 972, Denmark uh, turns to Christianity because King Harold gets baptized. Uh, sometime around A.D. 1000, King Olaf uh, Tryggvason made Christianity the official religion of Norway. Uh, and in doing so, he also forced all of the aristocracy under him to convert under penalty of death. Good, again, missionary efforts. Bob said we need to work on our evangelism here. I'm not saying take notes, but... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in Sweden, we had a portion of Sweden, the, the southern third of it, basically, uh, embraced Christianity under the rule of King Olaf Skotkanong. Um, I didn't practice that. I'm sure it's right, though. Um, he ruled from 994 to 1024. So some point during his reign, um, the southern portion of Sweden uh, embraced Christianity. But the entirety of Sweden didn't actually... Uh, accept Christianity until much later in AD 1164. Um, Iceland had what I thought was perhaps the most interesting story. So the Norsemen who had settled there lived uh, not under a monarchy but a democracy. They were one of the first nations to rule in that form. Uh, so as Christianity gained popularity there, it became very divisive. Half the population embraced Christianity and the other half held fast to their pagan religion. 
Um, it got sort of heated, looked like maybe they were headed for a civil war, a religious war. Um, but to settle the matter without fighting, to be diplomatic about it, uh, the people all agreed to consult with uh, an individual who was a, considered a very respected, wise old sage that lived there. Uh, so he pondered the two religions very carefully uh, and ultimately said he thought Christianity was the better choice. So based on his opinion, um, the Parliament of Iceland in the year 1000 voted to make Christianity the official religion. Um, it's interesting that, so under a system of democracy, I mean, in our nation, we tend to think democracy, you know, the people decide means everybody gets to pick their own religion. Um, but to these guys, democracy meant everybody together gets to vote on what our, our official religion will be, not that everybody should have their own individual religion. Um, this is largely because they saw religion as the glue that holds society together. So it was inconceivable to them to have a, a functioning, stable society with multiple religions. It was, we as a people will vote, and the popular vote is a religion we understand we all need to embrace if we're to hold together. I think we're seeing uh, exactly what they thought play out in our nation where we do have every man for himself, and we are seeing that society come unglued. Um, it is known, let's see, Finland is the next, last one I want to mention. Um, we don't know as much about Finland's history as far as when they uh, embraced Christianity. They, because of their proximity to Russia, they got a lot of missionaries both from the Western Catholic Church, but also Russian Orthodox missionaries. Um, and I think I mentioned that in the previous lesson. There was a bit of a battle, if you will, in the the northern eastern European states, the Baltic states as well, for the, the missionary conversions there. Um, but ultimately, Finland did choose the Catholic form of Christianity um, in the year uh, AD 1249, so quite a bit later. Um, but there is still a strong Orthodox Christian population to this day um, in Finland. Uh, many other Northeastern European nations, people groups, uh, also embraced Catholic Christianity at this time. Uh, we had the Magyars, which they're the people that settled in what is modern-day Hungary, um, embraced Christianity in the late 900s. The Bohemians, who are in the modern-day Czech Republic area, uh, actually as early as the 850s started to embrace Christianity. Uh, under they're the, they're the guys that had uh, King Wenceslas, we just finished the Christmas period. Good King Wenceslas was a Bohemian in the Czech Republic area. Um, yeah. So they they also embraced Christianity around the year eighty nine hundred, and the Poles, Poland, uh, in eighty nine sixty six, and the Croats from Croatia around eighty ten seventy six. So with all of these different nations, especially Northern Europe, um, Northwestern, embracing. Um, the Western Christianity as their official religion. We also already had England, Germany, France, Spain. Um, those nations all looked to Western Christianity, looked to Rome as their head. Um, so it gave a lot of strength uh, to the power and the wealth of the Western Church through the conversion of all these nations at this period. Um, yes? Oh, 
We're going to get to that. Oh, sorry. Not, <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, is that what I'm about to say? No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, a little filler information that you're going to need later. Um, many of us were taught uh, in our history classes looking at this time period, um, we learn about the government system known as feudalism, which was, like, oh, that was the system of the Middle Ages. Um, I won't get into whether that's true or not. There was some debate there. But um, feudalism, to define it, is basically a, a local lord, ruler, um, grants land to those who serve him, his knights, his lesser nobles. Um, and they then pass on land to peasants who farm it, that kind of thing. So it's this hierarchy system where owning land is what gives you power. Um, and so as these nations are converted and there's more churches that want to start being built and planted, they need land for their churches. Um, and so the local rulers are, tend to be the ones granting land to the church for them to um, build their buildings on or their monasteries, whatever it may be. Um, and in the process, because of this hierarchical system, they sort of feel like the landowner has authority over the church that's on his land. Um, and so he usually exercised this authority by being the guy that got to choose who was the clergy in the church. He got to pick the, the abbot, which is sort of the head priest. He also got to pick the, the priests within the church on, the, on his land. Um, prior to this system, clergy were generally selected by a vote from the church members. And then the bishops of, of areas were chosen um, both by the the church members and the clergy voting. Um, so we have this new system where the landowners are selecting the clergy and the bishops, and it's called investiture. Uh, and it's going to be a controversy we're going to talk about a little later if we have time. <laughs> so keep that in mind. Uh, one of the more interesting developments in the Western Church in this time period uh, began at the monastery in Cluny in France in the early 900s. Uh, the abbot over the monastery at the time was a man named Odo. And in AD 931, uh, Pope John XI gave the monastery at Cluny authority over other monasteries that it had founded. So prior to this time, every monastery was kind of a standalone unit. There was a general understanding of how monasteries should function. Um, Benedict, way back in, I think, the 500s, had written some rules that most monasteries tended to follow but there were no monastic orders yet. We think of the, the Franciscans or the Augustans. Or, um, those, aren't, those aren't in existence yet. Um, but Cluny now is the first monastery that gets to control other monasteries that it plants, like a church plant. It's a monastery plant. The Pope gave them that authority, yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't know what his um, reason for doing that was, but he gave the abbot at Cluny this authority, and so lesser monasteries under Cluny, uh, instead of having bishops, they had um, priors, were what their title was, the heads of these lesser monasteries, and they were required to make a vow of obedience to the abbot of Cluny. Um, and this was really the creation of the first monastic order. It was called the Clunaic Order. 
Um, and so they began to spread more and more monasteries. Um, there was a bit of a revival, a return to good monastery practice um, that began and spread from this monastery in Cluny. And by the year AD 1100, there were over a thousand monasteries throughout Europe that were part of the Cluniac order and looked to Cluny for their, their headship. Uh, so such a broad influence gave Cluny uh, a lot of power in shaping the doctrines and the practices, uh, particularly of France and Germany. There were these two nations where these monasteries tended to be. And so the, the Cluniac order really began to clean up older monasteries that had become uh, lazy in their practices, that had sort of abandoned their pursuits of holiness and things like that that are what you do as a monk. Um, in AD 999, Pope Gregory V granted Cluny freedom from the authority of any bishop. Uh, any local bishop or archbishop over a region no longer had authority over Cluniac monasteries. He said only the Pope had authority over the Cluniac order. Um, and the Popes, for the next few decades, to answer your question, uh, your question, sorry, proved to be very weak um, Popes, men who were who were in it for the political power, who tended to um, be very sinful and moral men, followed their vices, um, and it was just about political connection. Uh, and so because of this, the Cluniac order enjoyed basically total autonomy through this period, because the popes were busy just sinning, not worrying about how the church was functioning. Um, and so many of the kings of different Western nation, uh, Western European nations made close ties to the Cluniac monasteries in their land. Um, it, was, it was beneficial to both, uh, symbiotic, that's the word I'm looking for. The kings got the idea that they were, um, oh, what's the word? Basically, rule by divine right, because they had the support of the local bishops, and the local bishops had the support of the king. So, like I said, both groups benefited in that way. Um, so meanwhile, this is where it gets really interesting, there was a lot of scandal and confusion happening with the papacy. Um, so the popes were very weak. They had become just pawns of the, of the actual ruling class of Rome, and they tended to be very corrupt individuals. So in A.D. 1044, Pope Benedict IX um, got deposed by a rebellion. It was a, a political rebellion, but because he was, in a way, a political figurehead, he got gotten rid of. And the rebels um, put a man named Sylvester III as pope. However, nope, they didn't kill him. They just deposed him. Just, you're not pope anymore. Yes. Might have been better if they had, because it's going to get complicated. Uh, Sylvester was only the pope for a very short time because Benedict's political allies, allies quickly put down the rebellion and put Benedict back in the role of pope. Um, Benedict, however, was tired of being the pope and saw an opportunity to make a profit. So he sold the position of pope to a third man, Gregory VI. A short while later, he changed his mind and decided he wanted the benefits of being pope again, so he reclaimed the title. Without paying for it. Oh, of course not. <laughs> Just had his connections. Yeah. So in, uh, in AD 1046, 
meanwhile, to sort of jump back. The Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, they had sort of set up this idea that to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor, you had to go before the Pope, who then crowned you as like, yes, it is God's will that you are the Emperor of, of Christendom. So uh, we have a new king of the Germanic tribes, Henry III, and he wants to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor. So he went to Rome to be crowned by the Pope. When he got there, there were three popes. There was Gregory, there was Benedict, and there was Sylvester. And so he didn't know what to do. Uh, and furthermore, he was rather appalled at the character of all three men. They were all degenerates. The church was just in shambles. It was nothing, nothing holy about it. And Henry III was very tied to the Clinaic order and all that they were doing, so he was a very um, pious man. So he called a synod, which is uh, like a council, it's just a small local council, if you will, uh, of the church bishops in the area, uh, at a small town in Rome called Sutri. Uh, and so the synod uh, of local bishops gathered together and deposed, not decapitated, deposed all three popes. <laughs> they said, no more, all three of you are done. So Henry then took it upon himself to appoint the new pope, one of his favorite German bishops, told you we'd talk about the Germans, <laughs> uh, Clement II. Uh, and in so doing, he sort of cleansed the papacy, which started a small reformation. And, and by reformation, I mean actual reforming, not what we call a reformation where we just split off the church. So true reformation, uh, a small one, happened in the church. Um, uh, this kicked it off. Um, and so I want to look at one of the most central persons, but we don't have much time left, of the, the Reformation was a man named Hildebrand, who was from the Tuscany region of Italy. Uh, and this Reformation actually ended up being named after him looking back. We call it the Hildebrandine Reformation, Hildebrandine. Uh, it had three main goals. They wanted to reform the papacy from being a corrupt puppet of the aristocracy into being the spiritual and moral standard of holiness for the church, which you think the head of the church should be. They wanted to eliminate the practice of simony, which was selling clerical positions, what Benedict did. Um, it was very common, he wasn't the only one to do it. And three, they wanted to deal with rampant sexual immorality among the clergy of the Western Church, which obviously they dealt with because we don't have that issue in the Catholic Church anymore. Do they, Bob? <laughs> uh, the reformation of the papacy itself was accomplished um, by increasing the authority of the Pope and separating his authority from secular authority. Uh, it was at this time that the Pope first began to be described as things like infallible or as the vicar, uh, not of Christ actually, but they called him the vicar of the Apostle Peter. Uh, one even went so far to say when he got named Pope, he said, now the Apostle Peter resides within me. Oh. Yeah. Uh, at the maybe, <laughs> or Catholic. <laughs> At the Lateran Council of AD 1059, the right to select a new pope was granted to the cardinal bishops of Rome. So these are all the head bishops of the local um, different, uh, what would you call them, sub-regions around Rome, um, instead of elected by the secular authorities, right? It used to be the emperor, like Henry, said, you're going to be the pope. Well, now it's the bishops get to elect a pope. Um, 
the reason they were able to sort of steal this authority from the current Holy Roman Emperor is because the individual at the time was only nine years old and didn't care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in order to secure this uh, process, this right to elect the popes um, from any emperor who might grow up and care eventually, um, they made a treaty, an alliance, with some Norman knights uh, who had settled in southern Italy. These Vikings really got around. Um, make an alliance with these big burly men who like to fight, you're probably fairly secure. Uh, to deal with sexual immorality in the clergy, the reformers decided that the clergy should follow the practices of those in the monasteries, the monks, and be completely celibate. This is when the church first began to require priests be celibate, no marrying. Um, not only was this supposed to remove the opportunity for sexual immorality, but it also was meant to deal with um, the situation or the possibility of a clergyman having a son who then expected to inherit his father's position someday, whether he was fit to or not. Um, that was a problem that was happening. So, that, well, if they can't marry, can't have kids, there's no expectation of successorship. It sure did. Uh, and so the Lateran Council adopted this policy and made it the new practice of the church that the clergy is to be celibate. Uh, another interesting side note, and maybe I'll have to wrap it up after this, but uh, it was at this time period that the church began to think of itself and describe itself as the church militant and those in heaven as the church triumphant, uh, whereas previously they had thought of themselves more as the pilgrim church on earth and those in heaven as the church at rest. So this mindset is shifting to that of a battle. Um, and, and, and yes, and of conquering and of evangelism through conquering. And I think you see where this is going to go. We're obviously going to get to the crusades here in the very near future of our study. So um, I could go a little late. You want me to do this again next week? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll add to it, and, and there's enough for another lesson. All right, well, that wraps up this portion. We'll continue next week to see uh, what else the popes are going to do, because it keeps getting fun. <laughs> there isn't. All right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day, for the little bit of snow we got to enjoy uh, the last few days watching that fall, and for keeping us safe through that. And, uh, just lift our church before you, God, as we are um, going through our own period of history, as we're seeking a new pastor and dealing with different issues that confront us. Ask God that you would give us love for one another, give us your grace, give wisdom to our elders and unity to this body, God. Be with Bob as he preaches today. Speak your words through him and soften our hearts to receive them. Please be glorified by the service today. Amen.